I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. He's looking at you, kid. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Oh, I've been thinking. Well, what do you want to do that for? Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. They call me Mr. Tibbs. Welcome to 99 Years 100 Films, the podcast where we look at every winner of the Best Picture Academy Award in release order and see why the film is so highly regarded. This time we are looking at 1955's Marty, and by we I mean myself, Blaine Dowler, my ever-present co-host, Trey Hooks. Hello. And we have a special guest joining us, which I am quite pleased about. Some of you... If you've been following my podcast for a while, might remember the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast, which is a podcast I love doing, found very rewarding. One of the reasons for that is because of one of the co-hosts, or one of the frequent guest hosts, it was a similar format to this, but with a rotating guest every week. And in 17 out of 75 weeks, I was joined by none other than John M. Wilson, who is with us today. Welcome, John. Hello. Thank you for having me on. This has been great, great chance to be here. And Blaine, you've over the years become one of my very good friends. And Trey, we haven't talked much, but I'm looking forward to having this conversation. Awesome. Yeah, this is an interesting film. We usually talk about what our first exposure to the title was early. This is my first exposure to the movie. So this one, it's actually a remake of a TV play by the same director. So writer Patty Chayefsky wrote this as a play. Director Delbert Mann got it adapted into a, an episode of a TV series that was 53 minutes, and it was expanded to 90 minutes when they made it a feature film by adding scenes surrounding the character Clara. It feels very play-like, uh, as far as just, I don't know, the narrative structure and how things are paced. I didn't grow up watching a lot of plays, but I, you know, I've seen a few plays and musicals as an adult, and I don't know, there's something different about a play versus a movie, and just, I don't know, the kinds of stories and the way they're told, and this definitely feels like it'll be very at home on a stage. Yeah, I think a lot of that is, they have relatively long scenes in one location, because, you know, with a play, for the most part, the sets have to either already be standing, or there's something you can put together quickly by sliding things in and out. This was my first time seeing the film. I've actually seen the TV production. I I worked at Suncoast Motion Picture Company when I was um, in college. And they had released, I say they, someone had released it and Requiem for a Heavyweight, which had Jack Palance in it instead of Anthony Quinn in the TV version. And I had seen both of those. My first exposure was whenever y'all said, hey, do you want to come do a guest spot? And I said, sure, I'll look at the list. <laughs> I had never heard of this film before, uh, which, I mean, I, I like movies. I'm no huge student of cinema history, so I'm sure there's lots of quality film out there I haven't heard of before. But yeah, this was completely no. I had no idea what to expect from genre, plot, mood, anything. I think I picked it because it had a lot of recognition both in the States and uh, internationally as well. So I was like, okay, so this is probably going to be a good movie. 
So we watched it. Uh, speaking of plot and expectations, why don't we run through the plot summary again? I say borrowed, really stolen or quoted exactly from Wikipedia. In 1955, Marty Poletti, played by Ernest Borgnine, is an Italian-American butcher who lives in the Bronx with his mother, Estelle Minciotti. Unmarried at 34, the good-natured but socially awkward Marty faces constant badgering from family and friends to settle down, pointing out that all his brothers and sisters are already married with children. Not averse to marriage, but disheartened by his lack of prospects, Marty has reluctantly resigned himself to bachelorhood. After being harassed by his mother to go to the Stardust Ballroom one Saturday night, Marty connects with Clara, Betsy Blair, a plain science teacher at Benjamin Franklin High School, who was quietly weeping on the roof after being callously abandoned at the ballroom by her blind date. They spend the evening together dancing, walking the busy streets, and taking in a dinner. Or, and talking in a diner, sorry. Marty eagerly spills out his life story and ambitions, and they encourage each other. He brings Clara to his house, and they awkwardly express their mutual attraction shortly before his mother returns. Marty takes her home by bus, promising to call her at 2.30 the next afternoon after Mass. Overjoyed on his way back home, he punches the bus stop sign and weaves between the cars looking for a cab instead. Meanwhile, his cranky, busybody widowed Aunt Catherine, Augusta Scioli, moves in to live with Marty and his mother. She warns his mother that Marty will soon marry and cast her aside. Fearing that Marty's romance could spell her abandonment, his mother belittles Clara. Marty's friends, with an undercurrent of envy, deride Clara for her plainness and try to convince him to forget her and to remain with them unmarried in their fading youth. Harangued into submission by the pull of his friends, Marty doesn't call Clara. That night, back in the same lonely rut, Marty realizes that he is giving up a woman whom he not only likes, but who makes him happy. Over the objections of his friends, he dashes to a phone booth to call Clara, who is disconsolately watching television with her parents. When his friend asks what he's doing, Marty bursts out saying, You don't like her, my mother doesn't like her, she's a dog, and I'm a fat, ugly man. Well, all I know is I had a good time last night. I'm going to have a good time tonight. If we have enough good times together, I'm going to get down on my knees and I'm going to beg that girl to marry me. If we make a party on New Year's, I got a date for that party. You don't like her? That's too bad. Marty closes the phone booth's door when Clara answers the phone. In the last line of the film, he tentatively says, Hello. Hello, Clara? So I think that actually hits all the major points. Mm -hmm. uh, it skipped over the subplot with his... Um siblings and why aunt catherine is there but that is somewhat incidental to the overall storyline looking back in retrospect it feels like just a reason to get her in the house right and to have her be a voice that interrupts you know or that is new to the mother's mindset i found this for the most part eminently charming i think the the qualifications i'm going to make on that are mainly because of the kinds of story and the ways that you would do story in 1955 that just wouldn't at all be okay today. But um, other than those elements, I, I, I enjoy this start to finish. I found that in many ways, this is probably the most realistic romance movie I've seen come out of Hollywood. Mm. Yeah. Especially that the first few minutes were really resonating with my wife and I. Uh, we've known each other for a little over five years now. We are both in our 40s. You know, this is first marriage for each of us. She was, my wife is actually the oldest of five siblings. And the only reason she wasn't the last to get married is because uh, her youngest sister's fiance needed a few more years to dot the I's and cross the T's to come to Canada out of Vietnam. 
So yeah, this when it started off, we were both primed and ready to identify with these characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I texted my daughter. I was like, I'm watching this movie about a socially awkward older guy who's, you know, having trouble meeting people. It's me. I'm watching this movie about me. And at the same time, she texted, why is this movie about you? <laughs> we were the same joke at the same time. Well, yeah, even, you know, the part to where they leave the ballroom and they're walking to the diner or they eventually end up at the diner. But Marty just can't stop talking. You know, what, <laughs> what ended up being the first date between my wife and I. She says I tricked her on it, but that's a different story for a different time. But we went to go see Shanghai Noon, and leaving the theater, she twisted her ankle on the way to her car, and I was walking her to her car, so she sat down for what was meant to just be five minutes, and I sat down next to her, and we ended up talking probably for two, three hours in the parking lot of the movie theater. So that part resonated with me. I love the fact that he couldn't stop talking. I do wish at some point Clara had gotten to contribute <laughs> to to the conversation. Yeah, the the gender bias is very clear in this. In the original draft, it was meant to be a shorter play, and it makes sense to be called Marty because in that original draft, there were no scenes in the play that did not involve Marty. So the scenes we see of Clara going home and talking about this wonderful man to her parents and her future plans and all of this were added to increase the runtime to make it a 90 minute feature mm. from the, the hour long script. So that's all after the fact. So without those scenes, I think calling it Marty and focusing on Marty, it's Hollywood sexism, but it makes more sense to just call it like Marty's story when every scene has Marty. So I'm glad that when they padded it, they spent that time with Clara mm-hmm. rather than just making more scenes with Marty. I, I do like the fact that it was elevating her position somewhat, but as I think John was alluding to earlier, they are still not on equal terms. And the stuff I was alluding to earlier is just that. So at the end of their date, you know, Marty gets, let's put it nicely. He gets a little over eager with Clara, which catches her off guard because she's a very withdrawn young woman who has zero experience with romance. And this is in the fifties, whenever culture is just more withdrawn anyway. And he tries in for a kiss, and she resists, and he gets very upset. Now, this is an Italian cast, and loud, boisterous Italian men who seem angry most of the time anyway are just kind of a part of the thing. But it is very off-putting, you know, in a more sensitive era. But then the story rewards him for it, because once he calms down a bit, she's like, Hey, I do like you. I just wasn't ready for a kiss. Let's go out again, you know, and that Mm -hmm. definitely would not be the kind of thing you, you know, you would say was a good move in a story today. Yeah, that's, that's true. This is the era where they would talk about stealing a kiss. So literally guys kissing women without their consent Mm -hmm. was part of the culture. And it was something that guys were expected to do when they were interested in a woman. And yeah, he, I, I think seeing him try to engage a kiss is is fine but the hissy fit he threw when she said no mm-hmm. is the issue yeah mm-hmm. and I, I i don't say this to excuse it but in some ways i'm glad it was there because it gave some shade to marty's 
character. He may have been a little too perfect as presented otherwise. Mm. I mean, there are other ways they could have gone uh, uh, about it. So like I said, I'm not saying this to defend it, but it it did give a little bit more nuance to where he wasn't just the perfect gentleman, nice guy, just waiting for the right girl to notice that he was a prince. Right. Right. Yeah, that is actually one point that I think the plot summary on Wikipedia could have been more clear because they they say that he he went and first met her when she was crying on the balcony, which is true. They leave out the part that he knew she was going to be jilted before she did because her her date, she had been set up on a blind date. We see that getting started and her blind date sees someone he has, has a history with that he's more interested in and he literally tries to pay Marty $5 to take his girl home so that he can get off the hook. And Marty was saying that's not the way to treat a woman. And then he sees the guy find someone else. And he watches the whole thing transpire. He watches Clara, to her credit, says no. And she's going to go home alone. She doesn't want either of these guys. I loved the way that was shot because that was all shot from Marty's perspective. And so all you get is Clara's facial expressions in the conversation. And it's a great bit of acting from that from the actor who plays Clara, because she conveys the situation without being able to hear what she says. And they confirm it with a small bit of dialogue as the guys are walking away, in case you're confused. But yeah, I thought that was pretty great. It is, yeah. And that dialogue in particular was them arguing about whether or not they, or who gets to keep the five bucks since the guy's not taking them home. And he's like, no, you paid me. It's not my fault that she said no. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So again, treating her like, you know, they basically, you know, they, they made her feel like crap. And that's not their concern. They're more concerned about who gets to keep the five bucks, which, yeah, it, it is a nice piece. And again, like Trey said, it, it really helps you feel sympathy for both her and it makes you like Marty and you want to see him have a happy ending because he's the one saying, no, this is wrong. And going out to, to meet her the way it's played. And that's a lot of it. Ernest Borgnine's body language is great. You see his insecurity when he's walking before he meets Clara. Mm-hmm. And here when Clara, after this, Clara leaves to go to the balcony, he's hesitant. And when he follows, you do not, at, or at least I did not at all get the impression that he was someone going for the vulnerable woman. It seemed like that's a hurt human being. Mm-hmm. Do they need help? I am going to see. Yeah. And and right, that's the approach she was taking. And she just broke down and started crying on his shoulder at, at pretty much at hello. That was so sweet. That was, I actually got choked up at that moment. That was really sweet where she just like breaks down and cries on the shoulder of this random stranger who's been nice to her. The first person nice to her since she walked into the, the, the dance hall. Cause I mean, she was, she came with a friend. Well, she, she came with a double date. She came with a friend and her date. And then another guy, the guy jilted her. It's not completely unlike Marty's situation. Marty came with a friend and the friend was able to find a dance and go off dancing. So now Marty's been left alone because of the gender dynamics of the 50s. It's not really the same thing, but it's, it's, there's a parallel. I, I was going to ask you about that, John, because just you know, listening to some of your podcasts, I know who else you know in the podcasting community. And that Don lives maybe about 20 minutes away from me. If you and Don 
had gone out somewhere and Don kind of left you alone for half an hour and then you wandered off. How much right would Don have to be pissed at you later on? Because that's what killed me about Marty's friend. I found somebody to dance with. You know, I'm not even going to make sure you're okay. All right, I'm done dancing. Well, where the hell did Marty go? (laughs) Right. Well, and that's that's a little bit of, I think, of, of the idea of the end of the film is that everyone takes Marty for granted. They theoretically want him to get his life going on. But they're actually really Mm -hmm. used to having him and they don't want to let him go. His mom, his family, his friends. And so, yeah, his friend pushes him to go out, but his friend doesn't want to lose Marty. His mom says, go out and meet a woman. But as soon as he does, all she has is negatives to say about her. I don't even know why I don't like her. It's just something about her. I don't like her. You know, I'm Mae Parker. I can't let go of my son. Yeah, they, they generally want Marty to be happy but not if it takes him away from them. Mm-hmm. It's the opportunity cost or something like that. Yeah. And I was, maybe I'm overthinking it, but I was impressed that they made Clara a science teacher. That seemed a little bit, maybe it's the Whovian in me who's thinking Ian and Barbara, but that it seemed a little unique to me to make a female character in the 50s be the science teacher. In the 50s, almost every teacher was female. Yeah. I, 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 especially in the States, I would say that, you know, women taught all subjects and the male teachers were actually the exception. I would think that using the comparison with, with Doctor Who, that Ian is probably actually more the exception of that story. If that were a 1963 United States story, okay. Ian would be more the exception than otherwise. Just, just my impression. Yeah. I, I did not live in the 50s. That's just an impression. I know that when I graduated with my education degree in 2004... My graduation class was 70% female, and that was the closest to 50-50 that that institution had had. And this, to just to add one more piece of information to this, we're not talking about small statistics like my physics degree, where 90% of the graduates were male, which was like 27 out of 30. My education degree was earned at the institution that at the time have the largest undergraduate education program in North America. Wow. So there is a gender bias which is slowly closing, and part of that closing came because actually a few years after Marty came out, somebody released research that showed that there was a huge performance gap between male and female students in science classes. And so people started saying, oh, well, then how can these female teachers teach it effectively if women just aren't as good at math and science? And that's when they actually started hiring male teachers. So that was late 50s and early 60s. And those results have since been pretty much kiboshed because every decade they've done another wide-scale study and they find every single decade that goes by, that performance gap shrinks and shrinks and shrinks way faster than evolution could account for. So they're really saying, no, the reason there was that huge gap when they're studying actual videotape footage of the classes is that the teachers were convinced, as were the original researchers, that boys were better at math and science than girls. So when a girl gets stuck, the teachers were responding with, oh, well, that's okay. You're doing as well as can be expected. Don't worry about that. But if a boy got stuck on the same concept, the teacher would stop and help the boy because boys should do better. And of, of course, boys have the career ahead of them, whereas in the 50s, girls 
were unlikely to have a science-based career ahead of them. Yeah, so that that bias in there, they have effectively proven as well as science can actually prove anything, that the performance differences between male and female students are a side effect of a sexist society and are completely unrelated to the potential in the genetic pools of the population. I there's something I was thinking of while you're saying that you made me think of something and now it's pulling out of my head. It'll come back. Never mind. Okay. Well while you're thinking we did miss the release date for this. It was November twelfth, nineteen fifty five. This came out around the same time as the great clock tower accident in Hill Valley, <laughs> California. <laughs> Marty McFly. <laughs> <laughs> Marty helps Doc Brown make time travel happen. Yeah, see, when you hit November 12th, 1955, I knew where you were going. <laughs> I couldn't quite get the punchline out, but, you know, something like that. Yeah. yeah um, in fact, this, this only had, this had two release dates in the USA. Some of the movies we've covered have had multiple release dates because it's when it premieres in various cities. It premiered on April 11th, 1955 in New York, and then it premiered in L.A. on July 15th, 1955. And those are the only two, and they are both listed as premieres. Marty was the first film in the series of films that will define so many Academy Award winners in the 70s and then again in the 90s. This is the small independent film that rocked the awards. Hmm. So this was the first time it wasn't a major studio that was taking the world by storm. This were just a couple of people who put together a good movie and picked up a distributor after the fact. So this was the first in that, you know, the Miramax model, aside from not going for that hard R rating that so many Miramax films did. This was just that first indie, that little movie that could. It's not trying to change the world. It's not like a lot of the other movies we've seen that have the social statements or they're trying to be the grand epics. They're just trying to tell a really good story in a way that connects to the audience. And yeah. I think they nailed that. I wasn't ready for it to end. I was kind of, you know, granted we're a bit biased on what kind of stories were, were you know, told. And so what kind of stories were ex learning to expect, probably. But whenever he calls up Clara and they roll credits, I was like, huh, okay. Because, you know, you, you kind of expect them to go out and to, like, have some sort of closure to their relationship. But no, the whole point of the story was just that he is choosing this charming young woman over all of the people who tell him he should go find some charging young charming young woman and then resent it when he does. So was this your first um, exposure to Ernest Borgnine? Mine, yes. Okay. I, I, I don't know how you felt, Blaine. I, I really loved his performance in this, and this made me appreciate him so much more. One of the things that I liked about doing this podcast is sometimes things just line up right. So it hasn't been released yet, but for Blaine and I, a couple of months ago, we covered um, From Here to Eternity, and Ernest Borgnine's in it as a sadistic prison guard. So it's night and day from his role here in, in Marty. So it makes you appreciate his range as an actor much more. Hmm. Yeah, I I would agree because this like we said, there's only that one moment that makes him seem like not the best kind of guy, 
Whereas that previous role as the prison guard, I don't remember a single moment that gave him a redeeming quality <laughs> in that film. <laughs> and before both of these, I knew him from well, vague memories from Airwolf. I probably knew him best from when he was on an early season of The Simpsons. You know, when Homer stole the pocket knife from that Borg Nine guy when they were on their camping trip. Oh, wow. Okay. I, I, I do have a six degree um, for, of Kevin Bacon type relationship to someone from this movie. So they weren't credited in it. But Frank Sutton, who plays Ralph, who is better known as Sergeant Carter on Gomer Pyle, was in my maternal grandmother's graduating high school class. <laughs> That's pretty great. Which one, which one is Ralph? who was trying to get him to go along with him and another guy with three nurses. Oh yeah, that's right. Okay. So random tangents about dating dynamics. One of the things on the make ours Marvel show is how the heck does romance work 50, 60, 70 years ago? Cause I obviously don't even know how it works today, much less back then. It's a game. It's a weird game. And it was interesting how much they danced around the idea of, getting laid at the end of the night. But the guy's like, it's money in the bank. Uh, you know, the, these nurses yeah. and, you know, come on. And, you know, good on Marty. He's like, no, I'm a, he doesn't want to be the rude person and let somebody else down. But also I think by that time he genuinely wants to go be with Clara, regardless of how the evening goes. Stereotypically, we think of like what I'm going to call the Peter Parker, Harry Osborne dynamic, right? You have two people who are roommates, and for whatever reason, they have to go out on double dates together. So, like, that's what I thought was the dynamic with Clara and her friend. It was like, I can't leave Clara home alone. She's my roommate, so if you find somebody else who'll go out with her, I'll go out with you. That type of thing. But, but then we find out that Clara lives with her parents. So I was kind of like, why was her friend so vested in her going out that she made it contingent because you could really tell right the way her friend's boyfriend was acting was if Clara wasn't there and having a good time their night was over so and it may have been just a custodial interest in getting this woman married we've got to mm -hmm. like put some time and effort into her meeting people because let's face it, it's 1955 one of the highest aspirations most women could look forward to was housewifing and so they've got to they've got to get that to happen. She's got to meet people, and she's not an unattractive woman by any stretch of the imagination. But I was amused at how easily and like casually they tossed the word dog around, because I don't know. Nowadays, you say someone looks like a dog. That's right. That's kind of rude. <laughs> But here he's, I was kind of laughing at, at, at Marty because he's just like, you know, you think you look like a dog and you don't look like a dog as much as you think you do. And, and I was just like, wow, can you please stop insulting the woman you're trying to impress? But it was just, I guess, more of a common parlance back then. I don't know. Yeah. Plus, I think the fact that he turned around and said, well, you know, I'm a dog too, but look that at, helped. You know, we're, we're here. It, it, and I'm based on the way it's portrayed for the, the dating dynamics question, I'm wondering if the double date was a way to have the date chaperoned without having a dedicated chaperone. Mm. Mm, okay. 
So just make sure things don't go too far because you're there to watch out for your friend. Right. So it, it might be in those days, oh, no, you're, you've been seeing this person a long time. You're not going out without a chaperone. Well, how about a double date? Okay, that's your chaperone. So it could be equal parts making sure their friends are happy even having a date and equal parts, well, if we want these dates to happen without becoming the source of gossip, we need to make it a double date, which, of course, blows up when you get like the double date with the nurses where it's like, oh, no, we're all in. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're going to be too busy with our dates to chaperone each other, and that's okay. Right, right. Uh, she was so sweet with her parents. She was so excited, and she was going a mile a minute. And you got the feeling that the dad was keeping up, but the mom was like maybe five minutes behind of where she was talking because she was going so fast. And then he didn't call her and she was so sad. To show you how invested I got in this movie, I kept hoping that there would be like a shot of a clock and we would find that it wasn't quite two o'clock yet. So he had gotten his act together before he was supposed to call her. Yeah, that didn't happen. And I think to John's point, I think the ending we got is also... Mm-hmm. it feels more like a play ending than a Hollywood ending. Mm-hmm. Hollywood would have at least given us her answer on the phone and known that, okay, she has forgiven him because he called, even if it's late, it's going to be okay. Right. But we don't get that. He's, he, we just know he's picked up the phone and from the reactions, we believe, yes, like if she was that upset, they want to be together and we believe they can work this out and this is going to be okay. But I would think if they were to remake this today, you know, they, you go, hello, Clara, and then jump cut to the ding, ding, yeah. da, 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 with people like throwing confetti and stuff at the wedding. Well, I'll just throw the question out there. I mean, I was so charmed by it. I assumed a happy ending, but did everybody else assume a happy ending? Because I guess theoretically she could have been crushed and not answered the phone or um, turned them down. Or I assumed a happy ending. I see her point, definitely. She could have been too upset, but I think, I think it's one of those things where you, you get so invested in something happening and it doesn't happen and you're crushed and you have just enough time Mm. to get really crushed and upset. And then suddenly it happens and you're just like, oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, I wasn't ready. All of a sudden you get, and you had to like pull yourself out of your sadness. I assumed a happy ending too, but I, I, as we were talking about it, I was like, well, I guess it could have gone the other way. (laughs) <laughs> it could be bad <laughs> yeah the, the only moment of doubt i had was you know when i mentioned to my mom that we're going to be watching this for the podcast and she said oh marty i like that it's cheerful and just her tone of voice when she knows i hate spoilers i'm like okay was that a lie <laughs> so that was the only that was the doubt i had which actually i think worked because it it probably heightened the tension a little bit because mm-hmm. for me it wasn't a foregone conclusion that this would have a happy ending I like that though, because yeah, that's the film. It's 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 a charming, cheerful story about a guy who finds a girl. Hopefully, we're doing it justice. I I think we're all giving it the appropriate credit. This is an hour and a half film that is literally what John just said. I mean, I was kind of chuckling to myself before we started recording because I was kind of like, you know, Blaine may have gotten easy with the synopsis because he could say. Boy goes on a date with a girl and pretty much nail, you know, describing the movie. He calls her later. Boy goes on a date with girl. He remembers to call her later. (laughs) Exactly. But I I think it held all of our 
attentions it, it enchanted us and for it to be so simple and still be so good i, I think it's to its credit it's very dialogue driven and so you're very reliant on the performances especially of borgnine and of course he's so watchable from <laughs> from the way everyone's reacting to him in the book butcher shop you ought to be ashamed of yourself marty and then he pulls out the same line at the end with his friend. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. And you could read that two ways. That he's like falling into the tropes or he's like intentionally reversing the trope on him. You know, here's all the stuff people said to me. Well, I'm going to say it back to you. Let me call my freaking girlfriend. <laughs> but he's, he was great. So should we go through all the awards for the year? Sure. So the... 28th Annual Academy Awards were held on March 21st, 1956, hosted by Jerry Lewis, Claudette Colbert, and Joseph Mankiewicz. I need to check which year the Academy Awards finished early. I'm not sure if it was this year or not, but one year Jerry Lewis was hosting, they actually finished 45 minutes earlier than their Televi or television broadcast window. <laughs> Imagine that happening so today. <laughs> Jerry Lewis had finished. He said, okay, it's done. He was ready to relax. Like, no, no, no. We're in the air for 45 minutes. Go out there and improvise. So Jerry Lewis had to get out on stage and fill 45 minutes, and it was brutal. I'm sure he did it better than, than most others could, but still. But still. <laughs> you're going for the biggest night in your industry. You think it's done, and they say, no, no, no. Go invent 45 minutes worth of content, because you are still got airtime. Anyway, Marty won Best Picture. And as John said, I think this is everyone's first exposure, at least to this version. It wasn't well known, but of the other four nominees, I'd already seen two. There's Love is a Mendy Splendid Thing, Mr. Roberts, Picnic, and The Rose Tattoo. Best Director went to Delbert Mann for Marty. This is actually his feature film debut, he, or his directorial debut for a feature film. And he took home Best Director beating John Sturgis for Bad Day at Black Rock, Elia Kazan for East of Eden, Joshua Logan for Picnic, and David Lean for Summertime. Oh, wow. Best Actor went to Ernest Borgnine for his role as Marty, beating out James Cagney for Love Me or Leave Me, James Dean's posthumous nomination for East of Eden, Frank Sinatra for The Man with the Golden Arm, and Spencer mm -hmm. Tracy for Bad Day at Black Rock. Those are some names that he beat. Wow. Yup. Best Actress went to Anna Manina, or Manani, Manani, I'm sorry, probably Anna Manani for The Rose Tattoo, beating out Susan Hayward for I'll Cry Tomorrow, Catherine Hepburn for Summertime, Jennifer Jones for Love is a Many Splendid Thing, and Eleanor Parker for Interrupted Melody. Best Supporting Actor went to Jack Lemmon for Mr. Roberts. He beat out Arthur Kennedy for Trial, Joel Mantel for Marty as Angie. Salminio for Rebel Without a Cause and Arthur O'Connell for Picnic. Best Supporting Actress went to Joe Van Fleet for East of Eden. Well, pause for a second. So the mm -hmm. guy who played Angie was nominated for Best Supporting Actor? Yes. It's just interesting because in the scheme of the film, it's not that big a part. I didn't really feel like he had enough chance to really show a supporting actor worth a performance, but I don't know. That could be me. why he lost. Could be why he lost. Maybe there were slim pickings that year. Yeah, he had more screen time than, say, Dame Judi Dench did when she took it home for Shakespeare in Love. But we'll get to that. And that was one of the reasons that award was criticized. Sorry, but the reason I, I said, yeah, is I, 
I don't think he should have won, but Jack Lemon and Salmoneo were some heavyweights this year. So, yeah, I was gonna get to that because after we go through them, we usually say, "Do we think that's worthwhile?" And it's been a few years since I saw Mister Roberts or Love Is a Many Splendored Thing, but I have no issues with Jack Lemon taking it home for Mister Roberts. Anyway, so for Best Supporting Actress, we did know that Joe Van Vliet won for East of Eden. She beat out Betsy Blair for playing Clara in Marty, Peggy Lee for Pete Kelly's Blues, Marissa Pavon for The Rose Tattoo, and Natalie Wood for Rebel Without a Cause. Best Screenplay went to Patty Chayefsky for Marty, beating out the screenplays for Bad Day at Black Rock, Blackboard Jungle, East of Eden, and Love Me or Leave Me. Best Story and Screenplay went to Interrupted Melody, beating out Court Martial of Billy Mitchell, It's Always Fair Weather, Monsieur Hulot's Holiday, and The Seven Little Foys. Best Motion Picture Story went to Love Me or Leave Me, beating out The Private War of Major Benson, Rebel Without a Cause, The Sheep Has Five Legs, and Strategic Air Command. Best Documentary went to Helen Keller in Her Story, and that beat out Heartbreak Ridge. Best Documentary Short Subject went to Men Against the Arctic and Walt Disney, beating out The Battle of Gettysburg. The live-action short subject one reel went to Survival City, beating out Third Avenue L, Gadgets Galore, Three Kisses, and The Face of Lincoln. Best live-action short subject two reel went to The Face of Lincoln, beating out 24-hour alert, The Battle of Gettysburg on the 12th day in Switzerland. Best short subject cartoons went to Speedy Gonzalez, beating out Goodwill to Men, The Legend of Rockaway Point, and No Hunting. And if I mispronounce that, John can correct me as the experienced Spanish teacher. <laughs> I wouldn't, but go ahead. <laughs> well, go ahead and get it right for me. Gonza- Gonzalez. Okay, thank you. Best scoring of a dramatic or comedy picture went to Love is a Mendy Splendored Thing by Alfred Newman, who's probably best known for composing the 20th Century Fox fanfare. That beat out Max Steiner for Battle Cry, Elmer Bernstein for The Man with the Golden Arm, George Dunning for Picnic, and Alex North for The Rose Tattoo. Best scoring of a musical went to Robert Russell Bennett for Oklahoma, beating out the scores for Daddy Long Legs, which was also Alfred Newman, who won in the other category, Guys and Dolls, It's Always Fair Weather, and Love Me or Leave Me. Best song went to Love is a Many Splendored Thing, beating out I'll Never Stop Loving You from Love Me or Leave Me, Something's Gotta Give from Daddy Long Legs, The Tender Trap from The Tender Trap, and Unchained Melody from Unchained. Best sound recording went to Oklahoma, beating out Love is a Many Splendored Thing, Love Me or Leave Me, Mr. Roberts, and Not as a Stranger. Best art direction, Black and White, went to The Rose Tattoo, beating out Blackboard Jungle, All Cry Tomorrow, The Man with the Golden Arm, and Marty, who was also nominated in this category. Which was that? The Best Art Direction, Black and White. Gotcha. Uh, Best Art Direction Color went to Picnic, beating out Daddy Long Legs, Guys and Dolls, Love is a Many Splendor Thing, and To Catch a Thief. Best Cinematography Black and White went to The Rose Tattoo, beating out Blackboard Jungle, All Cry Tomorrow, Marty, and Queen Bee. So again, Marty was nominated. Best Cinematography Color went to To Catch a Thief, beating out Guys and Dolls, Love is a Many Splendor Thing, A Man Called Peter, and Oklahoma. Best Costume Design Black and White went to I'll Cry Tomorrow, beating out The Pickwick Papers, Queen Bee, The Rose Tattoo, and Ugetsu. Best Costume Design Color went to Love is a Many Splendored Thing, beating out Guys and Dolls, Interrupted Melody, To Catch a Thief, and The Virgin Queen. Best Film Editing went to Picnic, beating out Blackboard Jungle, Bridges at Tokori, Oklahoma, and The Rose Tattoo. And Best Special Effects went to The Bridges at Tokori, beating out The Dam Busters and Reigns of Ranchipur. 
So Marty wasn't nominated for that one. <laughs> no special effects. No, although oddly enough, the Dam Busters, which lost that, um, had a sequence at the end which was basically copied shot for shot in the best special effects winner from the 1977 releases. But we'll get to that later. It was actually the Dam Busters when they were going through a trench. If that helps people, in case you hadn't connected the dots already. Interesting. Okay. Uh, and the best foreign language film went to Samurai, the Legend of Musashi. So those were, those are the Academy Award nominations. So Marty has the most wins with four and was tied with Love is a Many Splendid Thing and the Rose Tattoo for the most nominations with eight. So one of the things that kind of surprised me just turning on the film was the black and white. I knew the black and white TV was, of course, still very common in 1955. But I thought that cinema had gone to color. So hearing that most of the categories are split between the two, I guess we're just in this era where it is a probably a combination of budget and artistic choice to make a film in one or the other. I imagine the color technology was still significantly more expensive, which is why people are still choosing black and white. But That was a lot of it. And there was also... So in addition to the cost, which is probably why this independent film was black and white, I think the 50s are probably the decade where you came out closest to 50-50 split between color black and white. Would you say that's fair, Trey? I think so. So that's part of it. And part of it is that black and white cinematography requires a very different kind of lighting. It's much more precise and often more artistic. Because with color, I mean, if you think of a sitcom, they are often using what they call high-key lighting. The key light is the light that is next to the camera and pointed in the same direction as the camera. And it's typically nice and bright. So when you look at the set on a sitcom, shadows are difficult to see or possibly completely absent, which is the goal. So everything looks bright and happy. Whereas if you do that with black and white, you can't make anything out. You destroy the contrast. Mm. So they, uh, especially film noir, that genre started what they called the low-key lighting, where that key light by the camera was kept very, very dim. So you could have some very stark contrast with light and shadows, especially in the German Expressionist films of the 30s and the 20s. Like, I think The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari is probably the most prominent example, where they were literally painting shadows on the set to have the shadows that they wanted when the film wasn't sensitive enough and they had to use brighter lights than they could manage. So yeah, this is a blend and most of the time they are choosing black and white. It is, as you said, a combination of cost and of artistic desire. Generally speaking at this point, if they were picking color, then they were going for the equivalent today of the blockbuster, even though the concept of the blockbuster wouldn't come for another 20 years. Right. So if we look at what was in color here, I'm not familiar with Picnic, but Guys and Dolls is a major musical with Marlon Brando, Frank Sinatra, Gene Simmons. Love is a Many Splendored Thing is one of the major romantic films. To Catch a Thief is Alfred Hitchcock directing Cary Grant and Grace Kelly. Right. Rebel Without a Cause they started filming in black and white because they kind of conceived it as a B film. James Dean started blowing up with like his rave reviews for um, films like Giant and Warner Brothers 
swapped to color and threw more money at it to make it an A picture to capitalize on his fame and reshot part of the film to achieve that. Yeah, uh, it's probably worth also mentioning Oklahoma this year too for one of the big Rodgers and Hammersteins, which I'm yeah. actually, I'm surprised it didn't show up in the best song. Perhaps it didn't qualify because all the songs had been written for the play years before it was turned into a movie. And Mr. Roberts was color. So, you know, there you've got Henry Fonda as a lead, but you also had a, a film to where they were shooting or wanted to make it look like they were shooting on a battleship in the ocean. And I think sometimes they went for color because it gave a better verisimilitude. Mm -hmm. That word is like every podcaster's dread. <laughs> yeah. And in this era, there was almost a code if it was coming out in color. You could bank on a happy ending because this was meant to have the mass appeal. Right. So like Mr. Roberts was the comedy. Oklahoma was the comedy. So that's part of it. Part of the reason I was willing between my mother's comment and that in 1955, if it's black and white, then it is more likely to have an unhappy ending. Huh. Which maybe maybe makes uh, maybe makes Marty stand out a little bit. So with that, how do you guys feel about this? Was or do you agree with the Academy's decisions? I, I flop around with my uh, obsession. Sometimes I try and watch everything that was nominated. Sometimes I sample other things that are more popular today from that year. And this time was more of the latter. Out of what was nominated for Best Motion Picture, I, you know, like I liked Marty better than Mr. Roberts, which is the other thing that I've seen. This is the year Night as a Hunter came out. And, and I know that you're going to mention To Catch a Thief because of your uh, uh, love of Hitchcock, and I'd agree with that one as well. I, I could see Night of the Hunter really giving Marty a run for its money. So I'm, I'm surprised that it wasn't nominated. That, that's a film that was directed by Charles Lawton. And it is a Southern Gothic noir about a serial killing preacher who is stalking two children to try and find out where their father hid some money that he stole from a bank. So Robert Mitchum's the lead. He, his character rather famously had love tattooed on one hand and hate tattooed on the other. So if you've ever seen... So he started um, that. that. He started that. That's where that came from. And it, it, it has almost a fairy tale feel to it. So it's a really odd but really wonderful film. I, I highly recommend it. The only other thing I'll take issue with, Blaine, and we've talked about this before, whether she should have won or not, I, I can't say. There's no world in which Betsy Blair was supporting actress and not lead actress in Marty. I know the studios make that determination on what they submit. She should have been submitted for Best Actress. To respond to that and, and, and debate a little bit, this was such Borgnine's one-man show mm -hmm. that seemingly every other performer in it was a secondary character. When I think about the number of lines that other people had or the number of scenes they were in, I mean, maybe his mother had the second most lines in the film. Mm -hmm. Laura, when she's on screen on their date, she rarely speaks. 
and their date is a good chunk of the movie, but it's it's not the whole movie. So there's a lot of movie that she's not even in. So having her as supporting actress rather than lead rather than as lead actress, I can kind of see that, but. It is a little bit odd because usually whenever you have a romantic pairing, you expect the other member of the pair to be the lead. And right. I don't know. But similarly to Ange, I just don't know how much she actually got to do to justify winning a role, which again, maybe why shouldn't win the, the award. I don't know. I liked her. I just, this was Borgnine's show. You know, I, I, I definitely agree that it was Borgnine's show. I think she probably did more acting than we typically see of the era. If you watch her her body language and her facial expressions, I think there's still a case to be made for her to at least be nominated. Yeah. Yeah, especially in this era, so many of the female romantic leads, even romantic films, were the trophy for the guy to win. I mean, I, I love Rear Window, but Grace Kelly's character is throwing herself at a man who's not interested in her. And this is Grace Kelly, right? She she has choices. She's got options in front of her. Let's, let's put it that way. This one, I would say that, yeah, this is a case where I definitely wouldn't count the number of lines of dialogue to say whether or not this should be supporting or best actress because she's playing a character who is almost terminally insecure and shy. She's extremely quiet, so most of her acting is silent body language. And she says so much. And she does a a great deal of amazing face acting. Her face acting is is off the charts. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, so that's one I... Yeah, I, I haven't seen East of Eden recently enough to compare it. So I I think... Betsy Blair's performance here is often underrated because I don't think I had heard of her until I saw this movie. And part of that could be because, as is totally appropriate to this character, she is plain. She's not unattractive, she's just plain. Mm-hmm. And you didn't see a lot of plain women in major roles there. It's important to this story that you know we're not looking at I mean, this story would not have worked. You would not have believed everyone saying, why aren't you married yet in those first 20 minutes if they had instead cast, you know, Brock Hudson and Grace Kelly. Right. It's like when Zoe mm-hmm. Deschanel plays the person next door who doesn't have any luck with boys. It's like, really? You're Zoe Deschanel. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that one, I don't know, in terms of how I would say they that they made their choices, of the nominees... Knowing that I haven't seen Picnic or The Rose Tattoo, and I haven't seen Mr. Roberts or Love is a Many Splendored Thing since I was maybe 10 or 12. So Love is a Many Splendored Thing probably did not get a fair shake from, I think it was probably about eight-year-old me, because it's mostly a love story and eight-year-old me didn't care about love stories. Mr. Roberts, I enjoyed. And that's one, again, I haven't seen it in years, but between those two, Either could have taken home the award, and I would not have been upset. It wouldn't have felt like any of them were robbed. They were both worthy films. Of the films that were not nominated, I, as much as I really enjoyed Marty, Bad Day at Black Rock is incredible. That was covered very thoroughly in the Is It Jaws podcast with our previous 
guest Paul Spataro. Uh, to Catch a Thief is excellent. Oklahoma, I think, is more deserving of the nomination than Seven Brides for Seven Brothers was. Guys and Dolls is also very good. The Monsieur Hulot's Holiday was one that was nominated in the... There it is. Best Story and Screenplay was Monsieur Hulot, Hulot's Holiday. That's a French film starring Jacques Tati. He was a mime. If you guys are not familiar with that, it's hard to get audiences to truly appreciate it because you've seen it all before. Because almost every single joke and sequence and mime that is in that film has since shown up in a Mr. Bean episode. <laughs> so much of Mr. Bean is stolen shot for shot from Monsieur Hulot's Holiday. Wow. I actually remember our film studies prof showing us clips from He's like, I don't get it. Ten years ago, people were rolling in the aisles laughing. And now it's nothing. Why is that? And I was the guy that put my hand up saying, because CBC ran this 20 times a day here in... <laughs> I didn't say here in Canada, but yeah, in Canada, CBC was running... Mr. Bean back-to-back every night, and there weren't enough episodes of Mr. Bean to do that without running through the whole series once a month. But people were still watching, so they kept doing it. Like, we've seen all these jokes because they were stolen by that show, and we've been oversaturated with them. So yeah, it, it is a funny movie, and I don't think he gets enough credit for it. So, it, so looking at this, 1955 is a strong year. Like, Blackboard Jungle was this year, yeah. and not nominated. If we look at what the Golden Globes did, they separate Best Picture into drama and comedy. Drama went to East of Eden. Comedy went to Guys and Dolls. So Marty didn't win there, although he did win the Best Performance by an Actor in a Motion Picture. And they have it in the drama category, which I think if you're going to split it between drama and comedy, that's the way to split it. Mm -hmm. Best Performance by an Actress was again Anna Mignani for The Rose Tattoo. Best Performance by an Actor in a Comedy went to Tom Ewell for The Seven Year Itch. Mm. Best performance by an actress was Gene Simmons in Guys and Dolls. Supporting role went to Arthur Kennedy for Trial. Actress in a supporting role went to Marissa Pavan for The Rose Tattoo. Best director went to Joshua Logan for Picnic. Foreign language film. There's Dangerous Curse from the UK. Eyes of Children from Japan. I think that's the one that Wikipedia listed as Ugetsu, mm. which is the original title. Sons, Mothers, and a General from West Germany. Stella from Greece, and The Word from Denmark. The Henrietta Award for World Film Favorites for Males went to Marlon Brando. For Females, it went to Grace Kelly. Special Achievement Award went posthumously to James Dean. The Cecil B. DeMille Award went to Jack L. Warner. Best Motion Picture Outdoor Drama went to Wichita. I have no idea how long that category is going to survive. <laughs> uh, television Achievement went to Desi Arnaz for American Comedy and Dinah Shore for her role in Davy Crockett. And for promoting international understanding, that went to Love is a Many Splendored Thing, which is a romance set in Hong Kong, which is, you know, about a an American reporter who falls in love with an Asian woman who became Eurasian so that they could cast a European woman because whitewashing in Hollywood is not new. Mm. The new actor, our new star of the year went... Where the actor went, it was a two-way tie between Ray Danton for I'll Cry Tomorrow and Russ Tamlin for Hit the Deck. And for actress was a three-way tie, Anita Eckberg from Blood Valley, Victoria Shaw for the Eddie Ditchin story, and Dana Winter from View from Pompey's Head. So 
not quite as effective as previous new star of the years that we've hit where we know every single right. name because i think i may or may not have heard of rest hamblin before i'm not sure rest hamblin did some kind of musical slash fantasy work if you saw george powell's tom thumb ever he was the title character i i know him from a couple of george powell films Okay, uh, looking at his IMDb, I probably know him from Gun Crazy from 1950. But yeah, or he's also Riff in West Side Story. And then How the West Was Won, Dracula versus Frankenstein. So yeah, he's, okay, he's got a long list of credits, but a lot of them are his co-stars. And then the final Golden Globe for the year was the Hollywood Citizenship Award, which went to Esther Williams. Yeah, so I think... In terms of the nominees, this did okay. If we look at every film for the year, 1955, the looking at Letterboxd, so they have Night of the Hunter as the best film of the year. Diabolique comes in next, at least in terms of the English language films. That All the Heaven Allows is in here, The Long Gray Line. Marty shows up as the 22nd best film of the year so although it is the highest rated of the nominees for best picture just for completeness to follow up on the comments made earlier bad day at black rock does come in at number 18 if we look at the imdb where i can also filter by country of origin and yeah so anything released in 1955 with at least 1000 ratings in the english language rafifi comes in at number one and then Night of the Hunter is number two. Diabolique is three. The Court Jester with Danny Kaye is four. East of Eden is five. Rebel Without a Cause is six. Death of a Cyclist is seven. Mr. Roberts is eight. And then Marty is number nine. So in the aforementioned Bad Day of Black Rock comes in at 11. Then To Catch a Thief is 19. So it looks like, historically speaking, Marty is at or near the top of the heap for the nominees. But history says Night of the Hunter should have taken that home. Well, you should go back in time to November and tell them this. <laughs> Only no, because they had their stupid ceremony like six months before that. So never mind. I know the ceremony was March of 1956. Oh, that's right. Yes. Yeah, see, see, I was right the first time. We'll, we'll talk about it after the recording. If any two guys could go back in time and make it happen, it would be Blaine and I. But I'll explain that to you later, John. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yeah, so I think that's about it. So, yeah, again, this is, it's not the first year where, at least that's my position as well, looking at this. I haven't seen Night of the Hunter yet, which I really should. I bought the Criterion Collection Blu-ray about five years ago, and it's just been sitting there waiting for me. That's it. So I think the the next thing to to cover is just who would we recommend this to? I would recommend it to Playgoing Friends. I think it has that sensibility. I would not recommend it to low attention span youths, but I think it's, it's just a really charming little romance. Yeah. And you know, we always talk about everybody's maturity, just different. Everybody's tolerance levels and their families are different, but uh, that one scene that we talked about aside, this is probably one of the more, future friendly films that we've seen i don't really think 
you know, there's not a lot or, you know, there's no egregious racism, you know, there's no violence or rape or anything like that, that, you know, sometimes creeps into these to where we're like, that feels really skeevy, or we would think of that entirely different today. So I think this one holds up relatively well for modern sensibilities. So again, there is that one scene that's out of place, which, as we said, is consistent with 1955 sensibilities. But the other element of it that I appreciate and helps me over overlook that one moment is that there are so many times when we see that Marty treats women with more respect and deference than most of the men he's around. Mm-hmm. Right, his his age peers pretty much universally treat women with less respect than he does. Yeah. And that includes his brother-in-law's interactions with his sister. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was a whole thing. Let's not even talk about that, but his brother-in-law is, um, when I was saying earlier, the angry Italian men, I was, I was partially thinking mm-hmm. of that because it's interesting when you first meet him, he's deferring to his wife. She's telling a story and, you know, he kind of sitting there, but then for most of the rest of their interactions, there's the one part where he's ranting about his mom moving out because his mom's not taking it well. And he's going on and on and on. And every time she tries to get a word in edgewise, he's like, I don't want to talk about it. And then he continues to talk about it. He's like, I'm done hearing about this. And she hasn't got, so yeah, it's just, it's a little bit for laughs, but not the most comfortable of laughs. But yeah, it's not the main character. You're not supposed to be that sympathetic with him. Yeah, that that entire subplot, which as we said, the Wikipedia skimmed over, was essentially that Marty's sister is not getting along with her mother-in-law who lives with them. There's not a lot of personal space, and her mother-in-law is, in my opinion and in Marty's sister's opinion, overstepping her bounds when it comes to the way Marty's sister wants to raise her child. Mm -hmm. And in the first interaction... The husband is sitting there quietly, not really talking, just letting his his wife say what she needs to say. And then they suggest, well, you know, maybe my mother-in-law can move in with her own sister, who is Marty's mother. Or, right? So get the aunt out of my house and in with Marty and his mom, because there's fewer people in that larger house anyway. And then later on, you could tell that yeah, Marty's brother-in-law was not okay with it. And he didn't want to be the one kicking his mother out. And some of that is because Marty's mother promised to handle the conversation one way and didn't. She was supposed to say, I am lonely. Please come in to help me. Please move in with Marty and I so that I am less lonely and I have someone my age to talk to. That's the way they agreed to handle it. And then so she said, yeah, they don't want you here. Come with us instead. (laughs) Which was more honest, but not conducive to reducing the friction that it was supposed to reduce in the first place. Right. Which, you know, I think goes back to one of our leading comments about this. It's a very, it's a very true to life mm-hmm. kind of storytelling. Because that is exactly the sort of thing that would happen in this kind of a situation. You go in saying, okay, this is the plan of attack. And then the person you're depending upon to use the plan of attack is like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> I'll just do whatever I want here. All right. Yeah, so in terms of who I would recommend it to, it is, I think it's probably the most realistic romance film I have seen come out of Hollywood. It's two flawed but fundamentally good people who have finally found a good fit for themselves. 
And there's a lot of moments here that just ring true with, I think, two excellent performances, especially Ernest Borgnine. Even little things like just watching the way his shoulders were set throughout the film. You can see his confidence coming and going just with where his shoulders are. You can imagine the expression on his face when he has his back to the camera because his body language is so clear. Mm -hmm. So if, if you want to watch a film for the romance, this is a good one. If you want to watch it, as John said, it it's one of the films that has captures the feel of the play that it was originally written as fairly well without actually making it look like they're just filming a play, which I personally find off-putting. It, it has the roots of a play, but it doesn't look like they just stuck a camera in the audience and filmed the play, which I find can sometimes be be the case. And I would also say, like, Borgnine just gives a masterful performance. And if you want to just watch acting, yeah, this is worth watching. So, Trey, who would you recommend it to? I think it's just a good, sweet romance without being saccharine. So, I mean, in anyone that's a sucker for a good realistic love story that's looking for something not maudlin, check out Marty. Mm -hmm. And without the gimmicks of the current rom-coms, and without a trope that drives me up the wall in the rom-coms, where one of the obstacles they have in place is that one of the characters is already involved with someone else, but they make that other person very, very unlikable, so the audience is okay with it when the romantic lead cheats on them. That's not here. It, that's one that really irks me in the rom-coms that thankfully did not get nominated, so we will not be forced to watch them. All right. So, John, uh, why don't you tell people where they can find your podcasts? Well, I'm um, talking about movies once a month, but more often talking about comics every week. I'm over with my very good friend Michael Kaiser on the Make Hours Marvel podcast. If you like Silver Age superhero comics, uh, if you want to uh, explore the early adventures of all the heroes that are currently, you know, blowing out theaters every year, uh, that's where we're talking about every Marvel superhero adventure in the order they were published. We've covered about six and a half, at least six, years of comics so far. And we started with the Fantastic Four number one from 1961, and we're going through all of them. And then uh, we also have like monthly specials talking about not comics stuff, like movies and theoretically TV shows. We just haven't done very many yet. And other such things. So yeah, come check that out. That is at MakeOursMarvel.com. MakeOursMarvel on any of your podcatchers. At MakeOursMarvel on Twitter. I am also on Twitter at John Reads Comics with no H in the handle or in the handle. All right. So, John, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This was great. This was a fun movie. I really enjoyed it. I was not sure what I was getting myself into. It was just it was just delightful. Okay. And yeah, looking ahead at the list, you mentioned you were surprised it was black and white. I think it's one of the last black and white winners. Next up, we have Around the World in 80 Days. and then. That's the 1956 winner, and I think the last black and white for a long time was the winner from 1960. Okay. And then if you do black and white after that, you're like making a choice. Yes, which is why there have only been the two, and even one of them had splashes of red. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Around the World with 80 Days is the next winner, and it was uh, nominated against Friendly Persuasion, Giant, The King and I, and The Ten Commandments. 
So yeah, that's what you have to look forward to if you are watching all along at home. Speaking of around the world in 80 days, one of my other podcasts is Bedtime in the Public Domain. The online resource I went to gave me bad information about how to pronounce the name of Passepartout. But if you go to Bedtime in the Public Domain, one of the books I've read is actually Jules Verne's original Around the World in 80 Days novel. So that is out there for your listening pleasure, should you choose to go to the original source that way, since it is in the public domain. All right. So unless anyone has anything else to say. Just thanks again, John. I've had a heck of a lot of fun with you tonight. Oh, thank you. Uh, yeah, this is this is a really great conversation. Trey, we should talk more. And um, thank you for your very kind words about the show earlier. Yeah, Makers Marvel is excellent. I I use the Downcast app where I can assign priorities to all the podcasts I'm subscribed to on a scale of one to ten. One is the highest, and Makers Marvel is one of the three podcasts that's at that number one priority spot. Fantastic. Who are my friends up there? Just so I know. I'm curious. One of them is Sci-Fi Five which is up there partly because they're only five minutes long. Every weekday, it's a Roddenberry podcast that gives you a five-minute history lesson on science fiction history. Oh, cool. So, it yeah, it's, it's good. And, yeah, that that's actually the, the main one that's out on a regular basis. And I think the other one that's up there is Listen to the Prophets, the Deep Space Nine podcast. Mm, yes. That comes up through Two True Freaks. They do a good podcast. Yeah, and actually come to think of it, there's four in the number one spot because Mission Log is there as well. Of course, yes. Which yeah. is also going through Deep Space Nine, although by the time this comes out, since this, yeah, when this podcast comes to your ears on March 28th, 2022, by then, Listen to the Prophets should have finished their run through Deep Space Nine and be started on Star Trek the Animated Series. Well, Mission Log will be closer to the end of Deep Space Nine because they are well, just a little bit behind, but also coming out once a week. So mm -hmm. they are in season six as we record this. So maybe by the time you hear it, they will have finished their run of Deep Space Nine and started Voyager. Anyway, yes. So, John, thank you very much for, for joining us for this. Thanks again for having me. I appreciate it. All right. And to our audience out there, thank you for listening. Thanks, everyone. My mom always said life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Please, sir. I want some more.